Two ladies, if you require a reliable remedy to restore you and remove irregularities or obstructions, why not use the best? Thirty years' experience has proved that Dr. Harvey's female pills have no equal for removing obstructions and irregularities, no matter from what cause they arise. They are safe and sure in every case. Price, $1 per box. Dr. Harvey's Golden Pills is a remedy four degrees stronger than the above and intended for special cases of long standing. Price, $5 per box. A lady's private circular with engravings sent free on application. If you cannot get the pills of your druggist, send the money to Dr. J. Bryan, 619 Broadway, New York, and they will be sent free from observation by return mail. Sold by C. and J. B. Hubbard, Druggists, Syracuse. Oh, Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to Episode 3. That pre-opener ad comes from page 4 of the Syracuse Daily Standard of February 5th, 1868. I chose it solely because it's directed to ladies, and this episode is about women's suffrage. But last night a thought came to me during my run. Listen to the ad at the beginning of episode 2. The parts aimed at men are mostly about STDs, and the problem is framed as an unfortunate result of youthful indiscretions. As with this episode's ad, though... The parts aimed at women don't mention anything as unseemly as STDs. Rather, they frame the problem as diseases peculiar to females. So, as it turns out, this reflects the zeitgeist of 150 years ago better than I realized at first. Men may have problems as an unfortunate consequence of their male nature, but women's problems are intrinsic to their female nature. In preparing for this episode, I've been torn between reading the articles in the order in which I discovered them and making a clean chronological narrative. If I were smart, I'd do the latter, but nah. I like the idea of sharing my process of discovery with you. Also, it feels like this approach more closely matches the tone I want to strike with this podcast. I want to put us in the headspace of an average person picking up a paper 150 years ago this week. Especially in this case, they wouldn't have had a prepared narrative that benefited from the clarity of hindsight. They would have started with a, who's that? reaction, and then pieced together their own associations, just like I did. So let's jump in. The following article appeared on page 4 of the Syracuse Daily Journal on February 5th, 1868. Political. Miss Betty Bisbee, the young and beautiful oratress who stumped Kansas in behalf of woman suffrage, 
has gone over to the Democratic Party and is now lecturing on the failure and the hope, meaning the failure of the Republicans to save the country and the hope that the Democrats will. I read that and I said, what? Who is Betty Bisbee and why would a suffragette go over to the Democrats? After all, the Democrats were the equivalent of today's arch-conservatives and the Republicans were the equivalent of today's liberals, right? Well, I fell into my own trap. Remember what I was saying about the political and social alignments just not bearing any resemblance to today's? Well, this is a fantastic example. As a modern liberal, I tend to think in terms of social movements amplifying and having a, a synergy with each other. People have not always thought like that. And just a few seconds after I googled this, I had a forehead-smacking moment when I realized, hey, I knew this. I knew that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton struck up a partnership with George Francis Train, of all people. Now, you're probably asking yourself, who the hell is George Francis Train? The answer to that is, in my opinion, one of the most interesting subjects of all possible subjects to study in the 19th century. But just as interesting as that answer is the fact that odds are you didn't recognize the name George Francis Train. Because at the time, the name George Francis Train would have been every bit as recognizable as Mark Twain. I've been reading these papers for weeks now, and you cannot find a newspaper that does not contain the name George Francis Train. He was an entrepreneur. He was a world traveler. He was a newspaper correspondent. But first and foremost, he was a personality. He reminds me of no one so much as Trump. Maybe a little bit of Elon Musk and Kim Kardashian thrown in, but mostly Trump. And yes, he did run for president. I'm definitely going to devote multiple future episodes to George Francis Train because I find him supremely enigmatic. But for the purposes of this episode, what you need to know is there was no more vociferous slavery apologist and anti-abolitionist in the North. So, from a modern standpoint, it seems surprising that suffragettes Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony would hitch their wagons to his star. But if you do a little digging like I did, it starts to make sense. The following is from a Books at Iowa article from April 1987. George Francis Train and the Woman Suffrage Movement, 1867-70, to by Patricia G. Holland. In the fall of 1867, when Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton arrived from New York in wide-open Kansas to canvass for women's suffrage, they decided to take the advice of a friend in St. Louis and see if they could get that entrepreneurial dazzler, George Francis Train, to give them a boost. On October 2nd, the local committee wired him in Omaha, Come to Kansas and stump the state for equal rights and female suffrage. The people want you. The women want you. Now I'm cutting ahead a couple of paragraphs here. When he came to Kansas for the woman suffrage cause, he and Susan B. Anthony, nine years his senior, stumped the state steadily for the last two weeks before the November election, while Elizabeth Cady Stanton made another circuit in the company of a former governor. Two propositions were on the ballot. 
one to remove the word male from the state constitution and the other to remove the word white, or, in other words, to enfranchise women and to enfranchise black men. Those supporting black male suffrage, chiefly Republicans, tended to be sympathetic to women's suffrage but feared jeopardizing their main cause by supporting the secondary issue. Finding well-known men from the East to support either effort had proved impossible and hence the decision to seek Train's help. The article goes on to describe that Kansas campaign and their eventual trip back East towards the end of the year. At the beginning of 1868, just a couple of weeks before that article was printed that I read earlier, Train funded The Revolution, which was a woman's suffrage newspaper. Jumping ahead again, we find a bit about Susan B. Anthony defending her partnership with Train. Even though Train himself moved on to other endeavors as soon as he had initiated the paper, the wrath over his involvement did not abate. In an early issue of The Revolution... Stanton and Anthony printed an attack from William Lloyd Garrison. January 4th, 1868. Dear Miss Anthony, In all friendliness and with the highest regard for the women's rights movement, I cannot refrain from expressing my regret and astonishment that you and Mrs. Stanton should have taken such leave of good sense and departed so far from true self-respect as to be traveling companions and associate lecturers with that crack-brained harlequin and semi-lunatic George Francis Train. The colored people and their advocates have not a more abusive assailant before him, to whom he delights to ring the changes upon the nigger, nigger, ad nauseum. He is as destitute of principle as he is of sense, and is fast gravitating toward a lunatic asylum. He may be of use in drawing an audience, but so would a kangaroo, a gorilla, or a hippopotamus. It seems you are looking to the Democratic Party, and not to the Republican, to give success politically to your movement. I should as soon think of looking to the great adversary to espouse the cause of righteousness. The Democratic Party is the anti-nigger party, and composed of all that is vile and brutal on the land with very little that is decent and commendable. The editors had already answered this kind of criticism in an early issue of the Revolution. Since turning our faces eastward from Kansas, we have been asked many times why we affiliated with the Democrats there, and why Mr. Train was on our platform. Mr. Train is there for the same reason that, when invited by the Women's Suffrage Association of St. Louis, he went to Kansas, because he believes in the enfranchisement of women not as a sentimental theory, a mere utopia for smooth speech and golden age, but a practical idea, to be pushed and realized today. Mr. Train is a businessman, builds houses, hotels, railroads, cities, and accomplishes whatever he undertakes. Though many of the leading minds of this country have advocated women's enfranchisement for the last twenty years, it has been more as an intellectual theory than a fact of life. Hence, none of our many friends were ready to help in the practical work of the last few months, neither in Kansas or the Constitutional Convention of New York. So far from giving us a helping hand, Republicans and abolitionists, by their false philosophy, that the safety of the nation demand ignorance rather than education at the polls, have paralyzed the women themselves. I highly recommend reading this whole paper because it's really well written and illuminating, and I will link to it along with some others in the show notes. For now, though, let's go back in time about two months to December 3rd, 1867, 
which puts us right at the end of that Kansas campaign. As it turns out, George Francis Train, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony were in Syracuse. In the Syracuse Daily Standard, there were four separate mentions and an advertisement on one page. George Francis Train at Whiting Hall tonight. All should hear the eloquent, eccentric man on The Basis of the New Republic. Susan B. Anthony, a lady of decided ability and whose name is familiar to the public, speaks at Whiting Hall tonight on The Great Rebellion, The Future of America, and Universal Suffrage. Hear her and judge. Elizabeth Cady Stanton will speak at Whiting Hall tonight on The Future of America. Every educated citizen should hear this talented lady, even though not consenting to or agreeing with her views. Remember that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, George Francis Train, and Susan B. Anthony speak at Whiting Hall this evening on The Great Revolution, The Future of America, Universal Suffrage, The Basis of the New Republic. Go and hear them. Now here's the advertisement. George Francis Train, the Union Champion in England, the Fenian Champion in America, the Woman's Champion in Kansas. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the pioneers of the women's rights movement, on their return from their triumphant victory in Kansas, will address the people of Syracuse at Whiting Hall on Tuesday, December 3rd, on The Great Revolution, The Future of America, Universal Suffrage, The Basis of the New Republic. The Syracuse Daily Journal had this to say, Whiting Hall, Equal Rights Meeting. Our readers will not overlook the fact that George Francis Train, Mrs. E. Katie Stanton, and Miss Susan B. Anthony will address a meeting at Whiting Hall this evening, tickets to which may be bought at Coon's Music Store and at the door. The announcement for the lecture makes these proclamations. Down with the politicians and up with the people. The National Party of New America. Educated suffrage. American manufacturers. Eight hours labor. Greenbacks. From these, the scope of the address this evening may be estimated in advance, but they should be heard to be appreciated. And then there's a second ad just like the ones that I read in the standard. Now, if you go over to the Courier, it gets more interesting. Remember, the Courier was the Democratic paper. Now imagine how happy the Democrats would have been at this point to hear that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were partnering with George Francis Train. Here's the write-up. The triple lecture this evening at Whiting Hall. Our readers will bear in mind that George Francis Train the Union Champion in England, the Fenian Champion in America, and the Woman's Champion in Kansas, together with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Susan B. Anthony, the pioneers of the women's rights movement, will address the citizens of Syracuse this evening at Whiting Hall. The well-known reputation of Mr. Train as a fluent speaker and the notoriety of the ladies who accompany him will, we have no doubt, be sufficient cause to fill the hall. Those who desire to attend should go early to secure good seats. Tickets can be obtained during the day at Coons Music Store and in the evening at the ticket office at the entrance of the hall. Now here's an ad that appears on the same page. It's similar to the previous one. George Francis Train, 
the Union champion in England, the Fenian champion in America, the Women's champion in Kansas, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the pioneers of the women's rights movement, on their return from their triumphant victory in Kansas, will address the people of Syracuse at Whiting Hall on Tuesday, December 3, 1867, on The Great Revolution, The Future of America, Universal Suffrage, The Basis of the New Republic. Now here's another ad on the same page that I almost missed. Revolution in Kansas, pamphlet of the most thrilling interest. George Francis Train's great epigram, campaign in Kansas, 30 speeches in two weeks. It goes on to give a little bit of doggerel and then a list of prices for a single copy, dozen, hundred, thousand, etc. So as George Francis Train is doing a lecture tour with Stanton and Anthony on his way back from their campaign in Kansas, he's hawking pamphlets of his own speeches from the Kansas campaign. This guy was the consummate opportunist. So let's look in on those same papers from the next day to see what they said about the lecture. This is from The Standard on December 4th. The meeting last evening. Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Susan B. Anthony made two very able and dignified addresses on the subject of woman suffrage at Whiting Hall last evening. They neither of them made any especially new arguments, nor are any new ones needed. It is only necessary to keep repeating the old ones, and they will finally entrench themselves in the heart and conscience of the nation and eventuate in beneficent results. Mrs. Stanton's speech was admirable, as indeed are all her speeches, on account of its clearness, beauty of sentiment and diction, and in most respects, fairness. Miss Anthony's address was trenchant, pointed, and effective. Both ladies seemed to have a controversy with the Republican Party, but Miss Anthony perhaps put it in the clearest form when she said that the Republican Party had thrown female suffrage over, and the advocates of the movement would throw the Republican Party over. We shall be sorry to lose the earnest support and efficient aid which the advocates of female suffrage have heretofore rendered us. But Miss Anthony must recollect that female suffrage has never yet been adopted as a plank in the Republican platform. Many of the best men in the party favor the ideas of Miss Anthony, but these men are working zealously within the party, they do not propose to go outside and arraign it because it does not immediately come up to their standard. The question of female suffrage is a growing question. It is seriously attracting public attention. Miss Anthony and her friends are a little impatient. Is it nothing to have raised the question to the dignity of public discussion and to have it submitted for decision at the ballot box? Is it nothing that it gets 20 votes in the Constitutional Convention? of 1867? Miss Anthony well knows that in the convention of 1846 it would hardly have had the honor of being referred to a committee. Every one of the last five years has been a gain for the cause which these good ladies advocate. And pray, let us ask them from whence have come their supporters and advocates. From the Democratic Party? No. From the Republican Party? Yes. With a very few exceptions. It is the destiny of the Republican Party to place the ballot of the nation upon an impartial basis. 
It may not do it today, it may not do it tomorrow, but it will in time. Miss Anthony has all her life been an anti-slavery advocate. She used to grow a little harsh and vituperative because the Republican Party did not more rapidly come up to her ideas. But it accomplished at least the reform she so persistently urged, did it not? We confess the Republican Party has not yet taken the only stand upon the suffrage which is logical, has not yet committed itself in favor of a suffrage which shall be truly impartial, limited by no arbitrary distinctions of sex or color. We do not therefore despair that it will not some day do this, and in that faith we are content to labor and to wait. If Mrs. Stanton and Miss Anthony expect to accomplish the desired result sooner by allying themselves with the Copperhead Party and indirectly advocating its worst tenets, embracing repudiation, so be it. We shall part from them with regret. We think that in the conduct of their present campaign they have made a sad, if not a fatal, mistake. Their own good sense will, we doubt not, ere long come to their assistance, and they will cease to present a noble cause to public approbation, belittled as it was in some respects last evening. Ooh, so you can tell the Republicans are smarting. Speaking of Republicans, let's go over to the journal and see what that has to say. Woman Suffrage The triumphal march of the champions of female suffrage upon their return from the late campaign in Kansas was continued at Whiting Hall in this city last evening. The hall was well filled, the main attraction appearing to be the irrepressible George Francis Train. Reverend S.J. May was chairman of the meeting and introduced Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton as the first speaker. Mrs. Stanton is well known to the citizens of Syracuse and, making all due allowance for the impracticabilities of the cause she advocates with such persistency, is popular. Her manner upon the platform is deeply impressive and commands respect even from those who would ridicule her theories. Her advocacy of woman suffrage is based upon mere theory, of course, but she supports her position by highly plausible arguments. Her assertions are made with evident faith in their availability. She advanced no new ideas, but pertinaciously clung to the old ones, which, she said, had been abundantly urged and never refuted. She claimed that the assertion that women did not want to vote was a mistake and endeavored to show that it is a woman's duty as well as right. She spoke of political corruption and claimed that woman's influence would purify and regulate the world of politics. The enfranchisement of woman would elevate her society and enable her to assert her rights in the social and business world. She dealt hard blows to the erring Horace Greeley for his dereliction upon the subject in the Constitutional Convention. Mrs. Stanton was followed by Mr. Train, who went on a regular train to the ends of the earth in search of something to talk about. He undoubtedly satisfies the curiosity of everybody as to his appearance, manner, and the matter of his endless rotomontade, and closed his two speeches to his evident satisfaction the audience being glad to nominate him for the presidency and escape from the rattle of his tireless tongue. Miss Anthony, in her brief address, graphically described the Kansas campaign, pointedly scourged the political parties, announced her determination to organize a new party to be known as the National Party, and sarcastically retaliated upon the Republican Party, 
which she asserted had thrown woman suffrage overboard by throwing overboard the Republican Party. She also indulged in sharp reflections upon the course of Greeley and others who do not espouse the cause of woman suffrage with the same zeal as she does herself. There were suggestions offered last evening in regard to political reforms which should engage the careful consideration of every man in the country, and which will in due time become, we doubt not, the fundamental principles of the dominant party in this country. But their adoption is simply an impossibility until our mothers, wives, and sisters shall, in their own most responsible sphere, impress upon the youth of our land a deeper sense of the responsibility which will rest upon them when they enter upon the active duties of life. Huh, so the journal was more condescending than bitter. Now, let's go over to the courier. The Triple Lecture one of the most amusing entertainments ever witnessed in Syracuse was on the occasion of a triple lecture by Mrs. E. Katie Stanton, Miss Susan B. Anthony, and Mr. George Francis Train at Whiting Hall last evening. On account of the space in our paper being somewhat monopolized by the President's message, we shall have to defer the report of the remarks until tomorrow. We will, however, add that Mr. Train's mind seems to be like the lightning. It strikes now here, now there but rests nowhere long. It leaps from cloud to cloud, from heaven to earth. It is successive with flashes of acute observation or remark. It is restless, active, but lacking continuity as the lightning lacks it. He is a human locomotive, running at the fullest speed under a full head of steam on a downgrade, a steamboat on wheels. He knows no such a word as fail. He undertakes a project, and it must be carried through. Oh boy, I can hardly wait, so let's check in on the edition from the next day, December 5th, 1867. Woman Suffrage Meeting In yesterday morning's Courier, we promised to lay before our readers a fuller account of the Woman Suffrage Meeting, which was held last Friday evening at Whiting Hall. Reverend Samuel J. May introduced Mrs. E. Katie Stanton as the first speaker. She said... It was claimed by some that women did not wish to vote, but when woman was made to understand the intimacy between the ballot box and bread, when she learned how necessary a prerequisite it was to her elevation and independence, she would wish to vote, and if she does not want it, what difference does it make? When you were about to establish free schools, did you ask the children if they wished it? When you passed prohibitory laws, did you go and ask drunkards if they wished it? When you gave the Negroes of the South freedom and the right to vote, did you ask them if they desired it? You did those things because they were best and necessary and for the good of the nation. We only ask you to use the far-seeing wisdom in question of woman's suffrage. The question before you is, does the stability of the Republic require that we should place the ballot in the hands of virtuous, educated women? I believe in universal suffrage, but I am opposed to having another man allowed to vote until educated women are allowed to. We, the educated women, do not like to be legislated for by uneducated men, while we can say nothing about it. We can pay taxes, but we cannot vote for the way it shall be expended. That is taxation without representation, 
and our forefathers fought against it. I do not come to make an argument for suffrage for woman as a woman, but for her as a citizen of the Republic with all the rights of a citizen. I have no new arguments to make, only the ones used in presenting all the claims of all white men to suffrage. The same argument John Bright made, the same argument the Republican Party has made for years past for the freedom of the Negro. The question of suffrage is the great question of the day. It underlies our Republican form of government. I am sorry to see that the Republican Party, after being defeated on the Negro suffrage, is turning its attention to other subjects. The question of suffrage is the great one of the day. If we forsake it, we shall undergo the fate of other republics. They all had their watchmen on the towers who sounded the alarms, their statesmen and orators and poets, who worshipped at the shrine of freedom. We, too, have them warning us of the present evils. Shall we take their warning and buckle on our armor and fight for equal suffrage, or shall we fail as a republic? The corruption of our policy is remarked by all. I was recently told that it was more than the strongest man could do to keep his place in Washington. You know senators already buy their places, and I know a judge of the Supreme Court who was recently paid $25,000 for an opinion. But some gentlemen say they do not want women to encounter the coarse vulgarity to be found at the polls. When you talk in that way, you are talking for effect, or are ignorant of real life. Remember that man is the companion of woman, not only the accomplished gentleman, scholar, orator, and poet, but the vile, vulgar, degraded man has his wife and mother and sister and daughter, and every man shows out what he is in reality at his own hearthstone. In this state there are 40,000 drunkards. Give each a wife and mother, and you have 80,000 in daily contact with the influence of gamblers, drunkards, licentious men, and criminals. And do you tell us that a rude jest or jostle at the polls is worse than to be waiting in solitude and gloom the return of a husband or son from midnight revels? The young bride steps from her chamber and beholds her loyal monarch down on his knees, slowly crawling upstairs with curses on those lips that, one short month before, vowed to love and honor her. Behold him in her chamber, in her bed. Is there, I ask, a more damning degradation into which a woman can sink? Is there a muddier pool in the whole world of politics? Scenes have been enacted at the hearthstone which can never be realized at the poles, or anywhere this side of the bottomless pit. George Francis Train, on taking the rostrum, said that 22 years ago he visited Syracuse. He stood in the railroad depot conversing with a friend. He saw a pretty girl get on board of the cars. He remarked to his friend, Do you see that girl? I am going to marry her. I never saw her before in my life. I took the same train and followed her to Niagara Falls. She stopped and so did I, got an introduction to her, and after a courtship of two months she became my wife. Turning to Mrs. Stanton, You have seen her. That's the way to do business. Go right at it. Applause. Six weeks ago I was in New York at the stock exchange with the gold brokers, went to Chicago to take 155 editors out to the Rocky Mountains and give them a lesson in geography went away out to Omaha and gave them a dinner at a hotel I built in 60 days and rented it 
to Cousins for $10,500 a year, or $52,500 for a hotel that cost me $30,000. Then ran up to Columbus, which is just halfway between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, the future capital of America. How absurd to have a capital way on the seashore when it should be in the interior of the nation. In all other lands, you are perfectly aware that the capital is in the center of the country. London in England, Pekin in China, all other lands have the capital in the center. So it is among the states of this republic. Albany in New York, Harrisburg in Pennsylvania, Springfield in Illinois, etc. The capital is in the center of the state, as is the county town in the center of the town. Why should our capital in this age be way off there on the seashore? But it is no longer old America and young America, but old America and new America. Old America is dead. New America is alive. Your old America, old ideas, old politics have passed away. New America, we have new thoughts and new ideas. Women's suffrage and greenbacks. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring out the false, ring in the true. I started on this expedition with the editors, got them to Columbus, took them to a Pawnee village, and addressed a great audience there in Indian. I never saw an audience so surprised when I addressed them in Indian. You should have seen Spotted Tail and Big Mouth. They were perfectly astonished to see any man talk as the Indians did. I took off their style exactly. Then we went to the end of the track of the Union Pacific Railroad, and I showed them how to build four miles of railroad in ten hours. It was never known before. We have made 525 miles of railroad and now carry the Pullman sleeping car from Buffalo to the Rocky Mountains. Then I went away, back to Chicago. They asked me if I would not stump Kansas. I asked, what for? Woman. Says I, count me in. Applause. I got to Leavenworth, and what do you think I saw? I found these good ladies had been sold out. Applause. Miss Anthony and Mrs. Stanton had for ninety days been speaking in every village, paying their own expenses, and fighting the cause alone for women. But the Republicans had sold them out. So I wrote an epigram. The Garrisons, Phillipses, Greeleys, and Beechers, false prophets, False guides, false teachers and preachers, left Mrs. Stanton, Miss Anthony, Brown and Stone, to fight the Kansas battle alone, while your Rosses, Pomeroys, and Clarks, like neutral England's pirate barks, stood on the fence or basely fled, while woman was saved by a copperhead. When I first commenced talking with Miss Anthony, she was three parts Negro suffrage and one part woman's suffrage. Now she is reversed. Three parts woman's suffrage, one part Negro suffrage. I then left Kansas and went to Omaha and took my wife and some ladies out buffalo hunting. We killed nine ladies, I mean buffaloes, female buffaloes. It was the first time ladies ever went buffalo hunting. Applause. I then went to Cheyenne and started another hotel. It will cost $80,000. I then went to Denver and spoke there and took $600 and donated it to the Young American Christian Association. In speaking of that buffalo hunt, I will give you the following epigram. Captain North with his Pawnee scouts first gave the signal, then the Indian shouts. Off saddles, bridles for a bare back fight, 
Wild buffaloes and Indians. What a sight! Durant, Davis, North and Train, like wildfire sweep across the plain. Down goes a pony in a gopher hole. See on the prairie the Indian roll. Neck to neck with giants of the race, for many a mile we led the exciting chase. With shouts and shrieks and Indian cries, the ladies shout, The bison dies! At Cheyenne, I made a speech where, of course, I was nominated as usual for the presidency. A puff for Colorado. I went to Denver and was there presented with a moss agate ring. I would advise all ladies to get one. Colorado is a gold mine. Here is my history in an epigram. What ages of volcanic shocks threw up these snow-clad mountain rocks? What earthquake these huge boulders hurled created the grandest scenery in the world? While sheep and cattle o'er her prairies roll, her gold and silver, iron and coal, wins the French medal against all odds, coined in the Garden of the Gods. Loud applause. Went back to Cheyenne, spoke there Monday night. On to Omaha, spoke there. Four columns in the morning papers. Spoke at St. Louis. Four columns in the St. Louis papers. Jumped on board the train for Louisville. Prentice gives four columns more. Spoke three or four columns in Cincinnati. Same in Cleveland. And here I am to do what I intend. Introduce Miss Susan B. Anthony, one of the pioneers of women's suffrage. Applause. This is not my speech. It is simply to break the ice for you and for her. I want to have you know me, and I want to know you. For it is hard work for these ladies to commence breaking the ice until they get votes, and then they will break ice all over the country. Miss Susan B. Anthony was the next speaker. She said, You have seen that Mrs. Stanton, myself, and Mr. Train are on our way homeward from the campaign in Kansas, where we had a most glorious battle. It was the first time we ever talked for the purpose of securing votes. Never before did we work for any political party, for never before had any party submitted to the people a question worthy of enlisting our energies. The question was put before the people in March, and Lucy Stone worked there during the spring. You remember that then everybody was certain that the question would be carried at the November election. But we held a state convention in New York, and there was another in Michigan. The party leaders debated the question whether it was for the Republican Party, which had a majority in the convention and must be responsible, put their heads together and decided that it was not expedient for the Republican Party to saddle the question of women's suffrage. It was a bigger load than they could carry when they had another president to win. Horace Greeley reported against women's enfranchisement notwithstanding his history for twenty years, showed he was in favor of the movement. Notwithstanding, we have letters upon letters of his endorsing the equal rights question and advocating the enfranchisement of woman. And yet that man who learned his first lessons at the feet of the noble Margaret Fuller, because he deemed it a political necessity, gave the lie to a whole lifetime by reporting adversely to the question. And when we knocked at the door for admission, there were only 19 votes in our favor and 250 against us in that convention. George William Curtis, the champion of the woman question in that constitutional convention, 
made a grand speech in favor of striking from Greeley's report the word man and inserting the word person. We had 1,000 copies of that speech published and circulated in Kansas. Mr. Train took the rostrum for the second time, while Miss Anthony distributed through the audience copies of their speeches in Kansas. And during his remarks, he kept the audience in a roar of laughter. He nominated himself for President of the United States in 1868 and was declared unanimously elected by acclamation. The speakers were particularly severe on H.G. for going back on the woman suffrage question at the Constitutional Convention at Albany. So, to recap... In 1867, Stanton and Anthony teamed up with George Francis Train to do a two-week tour of Kansas, stumping for women's suffrage before the elections. On their way back east, they did a bunch of lectures in various cities, including Syracuse. A couple of things to consider about those speeches you just heard. First of all, I still don't understand why George Francis Train appealed to people so much. Most of his stories seem like rambling, disjointed non-sequiturs to me, yet there must have been something in his delivery, his tone, his self-confidence that captivated people, because the man continued to attract attention for decades. The second thing to notice is that you can see the cracks forming, not only between the women's suffragists and the Republicans, that's obvious, but also between the women's suffragists, and the black suffragists. Pay special attention to this sentence from Stanton. We, the educated women, do not like to be legislated for by uneducated men, while we can say nothing about it. During the following two years, that sort of language would grow pointed and caustic. Now I'm going to quote here from a great undergrad paper that I found online. On account of color or sex, a historical examination of the split between black rights and women's rights in the American Equal Rights Association, 1866 to 1869, Whitney Hampson. Again, I'll link to this in the show notes, and I highly recommend reading the whole thing. It's very well written. So this following bit is about the first American Equal Rights Convention. At the 1867 convention, the issue of whose suffrage should come first was the subject of a heated debate, which started when each side tried to argue its case by calling a prominent black woman to the podium. It was the freeborn and well-educated Frances Watkins Harper who took the side of the black suffragists, echoing her sentiments from the previous conference that it was the racism of white women, even her fellow activists, that was a threat to black equality. She downplayed the necessity of lifting middle-class white women out of their airy nothings and selfishness, and emphasized that it was black people who need the vote now, even if it was only black men at first. Sojourner Truth, the illiterate former slave and gifted orator, responded to Harper by speaking of the idleness and arrogance of black men. She proclaimed that suffrage for women would bring them economic independence, declaring... When we get our rights, we shall not have to come to you, black men, for money. She even stated that white women are a great deal smarter and no more than colored women, although it was because all the latter could do was go out washing, implying that it was a lack of education, not intelligence, that plagued black women. This issue of education led to an argument between George T. Downing and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Downing demanded of Stanton, if she opposed black enfranchisement if women did not also get the vote. 
she replied that without female suffrage, the highest type of manhood should have the vote, not the incoming tide of ignorance, poverty, and vice. In other words, uneducated immigrant and black men. The conference, mired in controversy, did nothing but adopt a low-key resolution stating that suffrage provided self-protection, self-reliance, and self-respect. Thus, at the 1867 and 1868 AERA conferences, a clear division formed between advocates of immediate black suffrage and those who demanded the vote for women before or at the same time as for black males. The paper goes on, and believe it or not, it gets much, much worse than that by the time the 1869 AERA conference rolls around, and that's when the women's rights movement split into two separate factions. So, back to Betty Bisbee. Remember her? She was the subject of that short newspaper article from 150 years ago this week that I started with and around whom this whole investigation formed. I was stumped on her for a while. Turns out it was a misprint. It's not Betty Bisbee, but rather Bessie Bisbee. Once I figured that out, I found a number of articles, and I'm going to share one or two more of them with you. I'll start with one from before that schism that I told you about. This was in 1866, before any of the cracks started to show between the women's suffrage movement and the Republican Party, let alone between the women's suffrage movement and the Negro suffrage movement. Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, Monday morning, December 17, 1866. Women's Rights Convention. We attended the evening session of the Women's Rights Convention at Whiting Hall Friday evening, and was very much interested with the discussions of that convention. We believe that the members thereof are in earnest, and are endeavoring with all their power to place women in a position whereby she may have the right of suffrage with the sterner portion of humanity. She desires the right of the ballot that she may have a voice and choice in the selection of governmental officers and for making laws under which she has to submit as well as all other loyal citizens. We do not at present intend to discuss this subject in opposition to very many good arguments advanced at that meeting in favor of certain so-styled rights. Neither are we prepared to endorse but a small portion of them as conducive to society as it is at present. The president of the convention, Reverend Samuel J. May, made a few remarks at the opening of the convention, reviewing the proceedings of the earlier part of the day. He thought that now was the time for woman, as well as the Negro, to claim the right of suffrage, that the results of the late Civil War had given them an opportunity that should be made available for placing them on an equal footing with those who have for many years governed the people of this country, in his opinion. Without that sole right intended to be theirs by a higher authority than constitutional provisions made by man. We noticed several other champions for the cause present, and who took active part in the deliberations of the convention. Mr. Parker Pillsbury is a man about fifty years of age, and would be called good looking by most people, although he is an old stager in all reforms for the amelioration of the condition of all races and sexes and is said to be a friend to all benevolent movements. Still, he would not be the man, judging by his face, that a person would apply to for charity with expectation of receiving it, as a certain chilly look of the face is a contradiction to the reputation he enjoys in this respect. 
Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton appears to be a lady of about 60 years of age. Her hair is cut short and quite gray. Her manner of speaking is in terms truly eloquent and convincing. Her voice has none of the tremulousness of old age, but on the contrary, it sounds as sweet and charming as if uttered by a maiden of 16. Miss Susan B. Anthony is a maiden of about 45 summers, and the Lord have mercy on us if we have overestimated her age. She wears spectacles, ignores waterfalls, and dresses her hair in a very sensible manner. She speaks in a tone that means no contradiction, and we dare say but few would dare to make the attempt. If she were married, we would give a guess which party would be likely to run the domestic establishment. Miss Bessie Bisbee is a young woman about 23 years of age, not bad-looking, dresses very plain and sweet, and speaks a piece which she has committed to memory. She speaks of the cruel treatment of her sex by domineering men, that the women were slaves of labor that have to work, 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 and... And here we lose a line due to the terrible third-generation microfilm. And starting at the top of the next column, it continues... She gave A.J. particular fits, and several times during the recital of her piece, we thought she was going to cry, but she didn't. Several times we thought the audience were going to applaud her, but they didn't. Finally, she took her seat, and then they did. Charles Lennox Raymond, Negro, was next introduced by the president as an old veteran in the anti-slavery cause, who had labored 30 years for the emancipation of his race. Mr. Raymond is a maroon-colored darky, a good speaker, and made several capital hits at the fashions of the day. He said he was glad to see a disposition among the women tending to unite their interests with the interests of the colored race, that not only are they united as regards universal suffrage, but in many things the ladies copy after the Negro. As an instance, he referred to the attempts of our fashionable ladies to frizzle their hair, in imitation of the wool of the darkies. He thought that in this case nature had done more for the blacks than the whites. The attendance at this convention was rather slim, and we think the receipts at the door were more so. We would advise our strong-minded sisters to go home and give up this utopian scheme. It's altogether too Amazonian and masculine to ever become popular with the greater portion of our American women who dislike and disclaim any movement on the part of a few of their sex for authority and supposed equality of rights with the opposite sex, which could only be accomplished by discarding those qualities which make women beautiful and lovely. The sweet spring of affection and love in women's heart would be filled up and made stagnant with the dirty waters of political ambitions and aspirations. The gem that shines forth, sparkling and bright, giving light to the rugged pathway of men in his labors through life, is appreciated too highly to be exchanged for one of doubtful luster. Woman in her sphere is supreme, and if she reigns there as she ought, and as God in his infinite wisdom intended she should, there will be no need of her taking part in the duties of life for which man, and man alone, is eminently qualified. Ha! Yeah, so contrast that condescending, wheedling tone with the tone of the courier a year later that you heard just a few minutes ago. 
Now we're going to fast forward one more time from 1866, before any of that acrimony happened, to the fall of 1869, by which point the relationship between the women suffragists and the black suffragists was a smoking ruin. Syracuse Daily Standard, Syracuse, New York, Thursday morning, July 29th, 1869. Miss Bessie Bisbee, one of Miss Anthony's disciples, but a beauty and saucy withal, is quoted as having perceived the error of her ways, and that she will not do so any more. What? What happened? Bessie, say it ain't so. Out of morbid curiosity, I did some more digging and found some interesting articles on the Library of Congress website. They have a newspaper repository called Chronicling America, and it makes a wonderful companion search to FultonHistory.com. The following is from the States and Union, Ashland, Ohio, Wednesday morning, September 8th, 1869. Miss Bessie Bisbee denies her intended marriage, but admits her true love and her abandonment of the cause of women's rights. So we started out with a small article about Bessie Bisbee, and we ended with a small article about Bessie Bisbee. It's a sad arc. Think about the timing. She came on board Stanton and Anthony's movement just as the cracks were starting to form between that movement and the black suffrage movement. And in the following three years, she watched as women that she must have idolized went from the snide sort of comments that you heard in that speech from 1867 to overtly racist denunciations of blacks and the black suffrage movement. That had to have been a discouraging experience for a young suffragette, so I can't help but wonder if that played a part in her abandoning the movement in 1869. For now, I can only speculate because I haven't been able to find any specifics about her decision in 1869. I'm going to keep looking, but for now, it's time to wrap this up. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to the folks at the research room at the Onondaga County Public Library. I went there to find that article from December of 1867, and they were very helpful to me in setting up the microfilm readers. So, until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.